Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. Could the $188 million lawsuit levied against Providence St. Joseph Hospital for alleged upcoding be dismissed? Nationally recognized whistleblower attorney Mary Inman is standing by to report our lead story. In other news, the revelation of a secret memo from CMS has focused national attention on a previously undisclosed hospital. Speaking out for the first time will be a representative from that hospital, Becky Charlton. In the meantime, in Michigan, medical marijuana dispensaries are now allowed to deliver the drug to patients at home. Rack Monitor investigative reporter and New York attorney Ed Roach will report on the adoption of cannabis therapy in Medicare. Also on today's Monitor Monday, healthcare attorney David Glazer reports on another example of risky business. Senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohn reports on why he's suspicious when auditors review claims and report 100% error rate 100% of the time. And Nancy Beckler returns with the latest hot topics in the Monitor Monday listener survey. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hurst, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all. Last week, David Glazer talked about something very important. He had received a question about a patient who had received 72 hours of observation. In his response, he made a very important point, stating that for Medicare patients, observation should never exceed the second midnight. And he's right, of course, but I need to be a little bit more specific because we all have patients who linger in observation for days and days. The regulations state that medically necessary observation should never exceed the second midnight. But where did that questioner get 72 hours from? Well, the Medicare billing system has built-in edits that prevent a claim from being processed if certain things are found. The adoption of the two-midnight rule meant that theoretically no patient should ever remain in observation for over 48 hours. And the MACs talked about putting an edit that stopped any claim with over, than, over 48 hours of observation on the, on the um, line item. But because CMS said that rarely a patient could exceed that second midnight in observation, of course without giving an example, the MACs set their edit at 72 hours. If you send in a claim with more than 72 hours of observation, it should be automatically rejected. So I'm sure many of you are then asking what you should do with all those observation patients who stay in the hospital after the second midnight, but who don't need to be in the hospital, but can't or won't leave. Well, you actually have several options to choose from. I've heard many hospitals choose to stop billing observation hours at the point the patient's medical necessity ends and simply consider the patient an outpatient in a bed with no billing for room or board or nursing services. I think that's fine if you close the patient's door, don't feed them or have the nurse monitor them, and then simply open the door on the day that they're ready to leave. But I doubt that occurs in any hospital anywhere. The patient will continue to be treated the same with routine nursing visits, administration of medications, and calls to the physician if there's a question or change in condition. What you're doing is providing medically unnecessary observation services. 
So forget about not billing it. You provided a service and it should go on your claim form whether it results in additional revenue or not. The first step therefore is to be sure your billers can tell when medically necessary observation starts and ends. This goes on the claim form as one line item and determines if you get paid the observation APC. Then all hours after that point until the patient leaves goes on the form in the second line. And you have a choice. You can give the patient an ABN and ask them to pay. And if you do that, you add the GA modifier. If you don't give an ABN and absorb the costs, then you either add a GZ modifier or you bill the hours with the same revenue code, 0762, but without a HICSPIX code. Either way, this tells Medicare you provided the service for free. There you have it. Observation patients can be around for more than two midnights, but make sure you bill it right. Next week, Hirsch's Heroes for 2018. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now with the latest hot topics in the Monitor Monday listener survey is Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy. Good morning, Chuck. And nothing could be more hot than the topic that Angie Phillips introduced last week, and that is the use of students in inpatient rehabilitation facilities and potentially in acute care hospitals. I had a number of Monitor Monday listeners follow up with me regarding outpatient therapy, and that could be under a hospital, a skilled nursing facility, private practice, physician's office, and whatnot, Medicare therapy that's billed to Medicare Part B. So I want to provide student guidance on that, differentiated from the warning sounds that CMS gave on the Earth Open Door Forum call. So for Medicare Part B therapy students, only the services of a therapist can be billed and paid under Medicare Part B. The services performed by a student are not reimbursed, even if provided under line-of-sight supervision. However, the presence of the student in the room doesn't make the services unbillable. CMS gives a couple examples. Therapists may bill and be paid for the provision of services in the following different types of scenarios. The qualified practitioner is present and in the room for the entire session. The student participates in the delivery of services when the qualified practitioner is directing, making the skilled judgment, and is responsible for assessment and treatment. The second example is the qualified practitioner is present in the room guiding the student in service delivery when the therapy student are participating in the provision of services and the practitioner is not engaged in treating another patient or doing other tasks. The qualified practitioner is the third example, is responsible for the services and as such signs all the documentation. CMS states a student may sign the documentation, but it's not necessary since Part B payment is for the clinician services and not the student services. Pay close attention to what's going on, particularly at a hospital. If you have various different students coming in and are going to different areas of the hospital, the rules are different. Now for our poll this morning. Has your organization benefited from the CMS Patients Over Paperwork Initiative? Click number one for yes. Click two for no. Three, it's too early to tell. Four, it will never happen. And five, if it's not applicable. We'll be back a little bit later in the program. Thanks, Chuck. That was Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the President and CEO for Nancy Beckley and Associates. As Nancy said, we're going to have the results of this very interesting Monitor Monday listener survey later in the broadcast. And coming up at about 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, we're going to hear from Becky Charlton, Frank Cohen, David Glazer, Ed Roach, and our special guest, Mary Inman. She's calling in live from London. 
This is Monday, it's December 3rd, it is day one of President George H.W. Bush lying in state in the U.S. Capitol. The 41st president died late Friday at his home in Houston. This is Monitor Monday, stand by. Here's important news. TPE, targeted probe and educate audits, are on the rise. And Rack Monitor is conducting an exclusive webcast on the subject with Dr. Ronald Hirsch. During this webcast with Dr. Hirsch, you and your team will gain a deeper understanding of the TPE process, along with knowing about the important deadlines if you are audited. You'll receive tips for medical record preparation. Dr. Hirsch will also review the current targets of the audits and provide sensible solutions to avoid being selected for audit and to fight denials and win audits if selected. The important webcast on TPE audits is this Thursday, December 6th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register to attend. Click on the Handout tab in today's Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business segment is healthcare attorney David Glazer. So, David, what is risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. So, anyone who has a freestanding clinic in a building that also has hospital space should listen up. There's been a question about whether provider-based facilities can share space with a freestanding clinic. A pair of high-profile actions by CMS suggests that the government thinks that the answer is no. For example, the Denver Regional Office of CMS sent a letter to St. Peter's Community Hospital in Montana, which indicated that sharing of space and time is inconsistent with the provider-based rules. Now, you could say that that letter, written September 29, 2015, does not have the best words. Here's an actual sentence from it. Quote, the freestanding office space and or time are not owned and operated as part of the main provider. Now, with the possible exception of Doctor Who, no one owns or operates time. The balance of the letter isn't much better. It doesn't accurately describe the law. The letter is clearly attempting to say that it's impermissible for provider-based facilities to share space with a freestanding entity. In fact, the provider-based regulations include no such limitation. CMS knows how to ban the sharing of space. The IDTF IDTF regulations do precisely that. The provider-based rules do not. So the letter tries to invent a ban by focusing on the fact that the provider-based rules require public awareness. In essence, a person has to know whether they're in hospital space. And the letter asserts that when space is shared, patients don't know if they're in the hospital or if they're in freestanding space. Now, there appears to be some good news coming down the pike. Last week, the American Health Lawyers Association had a webinar that included a discussion from David Wright, the Director of Quality, Safety, and Oversight Group in the Center for Clinical Standards and Quality at CMS. Mr. Wright sounded incredibly reasonable and explained that CMS recognizes that some of its enforcement positions may be unfair and have a particularly negative impact in rural areas. He also said something that I would consider obvious, but it's significant coming from CMS. Patients are capable of reading a sign and knowing where they are. So I guess you can say that we have finally found Mr. Wright. He also indicated that new guidance has been written, and it's in the final stages of approval, and it should be released early next year. In the meantime, if you receive something from CMS claiming that you have an overpayment because you've shared space in a provider-based setting, fight it tooth and nail. While I look forward to seeing the new guidance from CMS, their current guidance is inconsistent with the regulation. 
Sharing space is one of the topics we'll discuss in the December 18th webinar entitled, How to Avoid Legal Pitfalls, which I'd also like to call the Glazer Work Plan. You can sign up in the Handouts tab. Chuck, space. It's the final frontier. Back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That was health care attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Frederick and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen reports on why he's suspicious when auditors review claims and report 100% error rates 100% of the time. Here now is 100% Frank Cohen. Thank you, Chuck. Over the past five or six years, I've worked as a statistical expert on hundreds of extrapolation audits. And way too many were based on this 100% error rate. That means that the auditor determined that of all the claims that were selected for review, every single one of them was coded and or billed in error. From my perspective, this makes it difficult to challenge the statistical methods used for sampling and extrapolation because the fact that the auditor determined 100% of the sampling units were in error is the big elephant in the room. And even though it makes it difficult to determine the correct sample size, it's not hard to imagine this could happen when the auditor has selected a non-random sample, like for some specific procedure code that they know in advance was likely billed in error. But when they claim that this occurs with a multi-year cross-sectional random sample, the hair goes up in the back of my neck. From a standpoint of common sense, it's unbelievable that a medical provider could code and bill wrong all the time. Statistically speaking, this is as improbable as it gets. You know, what's interesting is that the auditor can also get jammed up with this because, for example, if the paid amount average for the sample is more than the paid amount average for the sample frame, it results in an overpaid amount that exceeds the paid amount. And that never looks good when presented to a judge, even though it might be defensible. The truth is, I have never seen an audit that started out with 100% error rate end up with a 100% error rate once it's been challenged. One major problem is that, you know, the first two levels of appeal are all but useless. So the majority of the reversals occur at the ALJ level. And as we all know, it can take three or more years now to get a hearing. In every case that I have worked on where there was a determination of a 100% error rate, it ended up with a lower error rate after the ALJ hearing. So I don't know if this is a conspiracy or whether the auditors have tasted blood and they see this as a great way to extract as much money as possible from a provider or some other healthcare provider like hospitals, physicians, whatever. But I do know that it is creating havoc amongst our clients. The bottom line is that you have to take this seriously. I've had clients that decided they just wanted to pay back the demand amount without a fight. The problem is that in doing this, what you've just admitted is that you do everything wrong all the time, and I think that's a dangerous precedent. I accept the fact that we might not be right all the time, but I, apparently along with many independent judges, refuse to accept the fact that providers do everything wrong all the time. And that's the world according to Frank. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Frank, very much. That was Senior Healthcare Analyst Frank Cohen. Frank is the Director of Business Intelligence and Analytics for Doctors Management, and you can read his reporting on the subject in Thursday's Rack Monitor E-News. The revelation by Rack Monitor of a secret memo from CMS has focused national attention on a claim denied by KPRO from a previously undisclosed hospital. Speaking out for the first time with Becky Charlton, she is with Blessing Hospital in Quincy, Illinois. Here now is Becky Charlton. Good morning, Becky. Thank you, Chuck. 
During a short stay review, our QIO, Keepro, denied a claim indicating that while the documentation supported medical necessity, the claim was not payable because the admission order was not authenticated prior to discharge. During a teleconference with Keepro, the medical director concurred that the denied visit was medically necessary inpatient stay spanning two midnights. Keepro also concurred the physician demonstrated his intent to admit the patient by providing an inpatient order. When we pointed to the CMS guidance in the May 7th Federal Register indicating that CMS never intended to deny payment solely based upon the deficiency of an inpatient order, the Keepro medical director stated that their decision was based on a memo from CMS, number 18-143-CO. When we were unable to locate the memo, we reached out to a Keepro review assistant who stated the medical director never should have referenced the memo as it was an internal memo. She went on to say that CMS had directed them to not provide the memo to any providers. The rationale that she provided for continuing the practice of these denials was if they allow it for us, they would have to go back and redo everyone's reviews. She recommended that we appeal through the MAC as they may not have received the same direction. In our discussion response letter, we cited the May 2018 guidance as well as the January 2014 hospital inpatient admission order and certification document. Here, CMS clearly indicated that contractors have the discretion to determine when the medical record supports the intent to admit. Keepro upheld their decision stating the medical, director, the medical director had unintentionally cited the memo. Their decision was based upon the August 17th Federal Register statement that the final rule is effective October 1, 2018, and the January 2014 guidance did not apply because the issue is not that the inpatient order is missing or defective. The issue was that it was present in the record but was not authenticated prior to the patient leaving the facility. The memo has since been located, and we are currently awaiting the demand letter so that we can appeal to the MAC. We are hoping that the MAC's definition of a deficient order will be more in line with that of Merriam-Webster's, which is the quality or state of being defective or of lacking some necessary quality or element. Thanks, Becky, very much. That was Becky Charlton. Becky is the Niles and Appeals Coordinator at Blessing Hospital in Quincy, Illinois. Thanks again, Becky. Medical marijuana is back in the news. Last week, lawmakers in Michigan approved medical marijuana licensing rules, including a provision to allow dispensaries to deliver the drug to patients at home. Reporting on the adoption of cannabis therapy in Medicare is Rack Modern Investigator Reporter, New York Attorney Ed Roach. Good morning, Ed. Uh, hi, Chuck. Today we're going to talk about pot or cannabis. 62% of Americans support its legalization. 31 states allow medical marijuana. Nine states have recreational use. Ooh, a very old medicine. It was used 4,200 years ago in China. There are records from 300 BC of pot being traded between India and Egypt. It is not a narcotic, nor the present, stimulant, anesthetic, or hallucinogenic. It has the same dependence level as nitrous oxide or caffeine. The psychoactive ingredient is tetrahydrocannabinol, known as THC. Smoking pot throws your cannabinoid neuroreceptor system into chaos. Yes, neuroscience shows we all have built-in cannabinoid receptors ready to go. 
And depending on where in the neurosystem those receptors are, we see different effects. The brain stand for anthropomagia, <clears throat> excuse me, hypothalamus, eating and sex, spinal cord, pain, amygdala, emotions like fear or anxiety, hippocampus, learning or forgetting. Supposedly, pot helps with philosophical thinking, introspection, and metacognition, whatever that is. When used in a form where the psychoactive ingredients are stripped out, cannabis has emerged as a painkiller. Let's look at states where pot is legalized for medical use. How can patients get it? Answer, it depends on the state and on getting a doctor to issue a document. It's not a prescription, but a type of certification. Doctors can't write prescriptions for illegal drugs. Get the certification, then get a medical marijuana card, then you are legal in your state. So when will Medicare pay for pot? The catch. There is a conflict between federal and state law. Under the Controlled Substances Act, the FDA classifies pot as a Schedule I drug, same class as LSD and heroin. Pot is not approved as a safe and effective drug for any indication. What will it take to make this transition? Well, first, the FDA would need to approve use of cannabis and move it to a Schedule II or III. Second, protocols would need to be worked out so pot could be incorporated into mainstream medical practices. Protocols take time, but once worked out, pot would be available for a full range of uses. Reduce nausea and vomiting during chemotherapy, help HIV patients keep their appetite, treat chronic pain and muscle spasms, perhaps hospice. And it would be accepted not only by Medicare, but by all insurance. No protocols means no insurance coverage of any kind. What is happening now? One needs only go to Medline to see the scientific literature. Scientists are conducting extensive research on cannabis. But we know it takes 5,000 new molecular entities to get a single usable drug and 15 years to take it through trials. New drugs are slow to be accepted and cannabis will be no different. But when the time comes, the experience in the states may contribute to a faster learning curve on the protocol side. Thanks very much, Ed. That was Rack Modern Investigative Reporter and New York Attorney Ed Roach. Ed is the Director of Scientific Intelligence at Barraclou LLC in New York, and you can read Ed Roach's report on this very important subject in Thursday's edition of Rack Modern Green News. Good. The $188 million lawsuit levied against Providence St. Joseph Hospital for alleged of coding be dismissed. Nationally recognized whistleblower attorney Mary Inman has a report. Good morning, Mary. Good morning, Chuck. As regular listeners of Monitor Monday may recall, I first reported on this whistleblower-initiated False Claims Act case at the end of August 2018 when the government declined to join the case against Providence Health and Services and its consultant, J.A. Thomas and Associates, and the court file was unsealed. On that Monitor Monday program, I noted that the case was part of a new breed of whistleblower cases in which the whistleblower, instead of being an insider at Providence or J.A. Thomas, was an outsider, a data analytics company called Integra Med Analytics, who looked at publicly available claims data to uncover what it alleged was a statistically significant pattern with the hallmarks of upcoding fraud. Specifically, according to Integra's complaint, 
Providence hospitals that use J.A. Thomas and Associates as a consultant were significantly more likely than other hospitals to bill Medicare for three secondary diagnoses, encephalopathy, respiratory failure, and malnutrition. That can increase a hospital's Medicare payments by $1,000 to $25,000 per claim. In a new development in this matter, defendants Providence and J.A. Thomas have now moved to dismiss the case, arguing that the whistleblower has not brought the government any information that it did not already have, since Integra just used publicly available CMS data for its allegations and thereby has not satisfied the False Claims Act's requirements that cases must be based on non-public information unless the whistleblower is the original source of the information. The court is scheduled to hear defendant's motion to dismiss on January 12, 2019. Although the whistleblower has not yet replied to defendant's motion to dismiss, it is likely that whistleblower Integra will respond by noting that it does not rely exclusively on its statistical analysis of public data to allege fraud against Providence and J.A. Thomas, and instead supplemented its analysis of CMS claims data with more traditional, classic inside information to confirm its findings. According to its complaint, Integra conducted what it describes as an exhaustive multifaceted investigation whereby Integra interviewed former employees of Providence and J.A. Thomas and reviewed their marketing materials to show Providence's alleged false claims were not only intentional, but part of a systemic effort to boost Medicare revenue. Integra's complaint references internal documents presumably provided by the former employee insiders Integra interviewed, allegedly containing examples of J.A. Thomas coaching and steering Providence doctors to upcode for CCs and MCCs. We'll have to wait until the court hearing on January 12th to figure out which of these arguments will win the day. Since allegations of fraud must be pled with specificity, defendants also argue that Integra's complaint lacks the necessary specificity to survive the motion to dismiss, noting that Integra doesn't point to any specific diagnoses as false and instead says that some number of diagnoses out of a universe of thousands are incorrect. Historically, data cases filed by whistleblower outsiders such as this have not had a lot of success due to the many of the problems that defendants are now raising. However, we'll need to wait for whistleblower Integra's reply and ultimately the court's hearing of this matter before we know if Integra has provided enough non-public information and specificity to allow its complaint to survive and for the case to proceed. That's it for me, Chuck. Thanks, Mary, very much. That was nationally recognized whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Mary is a partner at the Constantine Cannon Law Office, and we thank her very much for the support. Now it's time for the Monitor Monday Listener Survey. Here, once again, is Nancy Beckley. Our survey this morning was, has your organization benefited from the CMS Patients Over Paperwork Initiative? And it looks like the vast majority of our providers that are on the call this morning say it's too early to tell. The second highest number is non-applicable. 
And then uh, we only have a very few, probably just not even a percentage point where people said yes. So we need to pay a little bit closer attention to what CMS is stating their initiatives are, patients over paperwork, and then monitor. Chuck? Very good. Thanks, Nancy. That's going to be a wrap for us, and I want to thank you very much for being with us today. A special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nancy Beckley, whom you just heard, Becky Charleston, Frank Cohen, David Glazer, Ronald Hirsch, MD. At Roach and our special guest, Mary Inman, who is calling in live from London, and we thank you for starting off your week with us this morning. And a reminder that next week, Dr. Ronald Herscher will be presenting his annual Hershey's Hero. That's next Monday. Look forward to your being with us again. I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you very much for being with us. Have a great day, everyone. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor. <laughs>